Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. On today's episode, we skip back to a release from earlier in 2018, Jennifer Mills' Dyschronia. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Exploring books, writing, and literary culture, I get to share stories and issues that make our world tick and get behind the scenes talking to the creators. In Great Conversations, I bring you more of these discussions and help you discover the best of Australian writing. In Dyschronia, we explore a world scarred by climate change. When the residents of Clapston wake to discover the ocean has retreated to the horizon, they are stunned. As sea life perishes on the shore, they must try and understand what this change means to their small town. At the vanguard of Clyphi and hearkening back to Greek tragedy, Dyschronia explores our world and the consequences of actions and attempts to control it. I had a whole pile of books arrive over the summer and, and I got to wade through them and one jumped out at me. It has a stunning cover and it is a stunning story. It is Dyschronia by Jennifer Mills and I have Jennifer on the line. We're going to chat about the book. Welcome to Final Draft, Jen. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Now, that wasn't a great introduction uh, because you are also, you are the author of Dyschronia, but you're also the fiction editor at Overland Journal. You've got, your novels include The Rest is Wait, Gone, The Diamond Anchor. Dyschronia is just the latest in the line, but it is, it is lovely and I'm, I'm happy to be sharing this with people. Dyschronia brings us the story of Sam and since childhood, Sam's experienced debilitating migraines that give her glimpses of the future. When her first vision comes true, Sam finally sort of feels like her life's come together as, as her memories are catching up with her reality. And when the shorelines of Sam's hometown of Clapston retreat and the sea disappears, the residents are panicked. Did Sam know about this? And if so, why weren't they warned? Like, that's a hook. Like, that, that had me. Um, conceptually, dyschronia is, is vast. You, you're incorporating speculative elements in Sam's sort of precognition. You've got a climate catastrophe, as well as these really tightly written point of view narratives from within the close community of Clapston. What was it like for you bringing all of those elements together into the novel? Um, it was a, quite an architectural nightmare, if I'm honest. Um, I generally enjoy the like problem-solving parts of writing and rewriting, where you're looking at really the engineering of the story and um, you know, structuring the book and I use a lot of maps and that sort of thing and timelines and I realised very early on with this book that linear time was completely out the window. So I had to come up with something else um, that would work with the subject and work with this this notion of um, time being out of joint. And so I came up with this sort of wheels within wheels structure, um, which... It was difficult to develop, but then once I had it, I knew that I had the right shape for the book. Oh, that, that, that was actually something I was really curious about, because um, to give people a sense of dyschronia, we jump between points in, I guess we might say Sam's timeline, because of course, she is remembering the future and has a really uneasy relationship with her present. She's constantly slipping her... Uh, her verbs, um, her verb tenses up, and we get a real sense that that is the way she lives, and so we live that through the book. I was, I was actually curious. Do you write? Did you write straight and then cut it up like a jigsaw puzzle, or were these are these the wheels within wheels you just discussed? Uh, the <clears throat> the initial draft was actually very fragmented, 
and I just uh, I started longhand and I was just writing sort of whatever came to mind so a lot of it was uh, imagery if I recall well like this imagery of the Ferris wheel and the the ruined theme park and this imagery of the sea and the small town and everything sort of evolved around these images for me and then it was a matter of piecing these fragments together so I didn't have a plan and I didn't really have a story as such when I began I had this speculation and this um, sort of theory that I wanted to test about <coughs> excuse me um, this theory that I wanted to test about um, I guess uh, how we how we live now um, feels to me like we're in this moment of acceleration but also like deep nostalgia if you know what I mean like mm. we're sort of nostalgic for futures that we were promised that haven't happened and climate change is bringing all this stuff to the fore and there's a certain kind of um, despair or disturbance about thinking about it because I feel like for me growing up I, I expected the planet to be more or less available to me for the rest of my life mm. and now we're sort of having a sense of well that future's been stolen from us and how do we get that back um, yeah it's a bit heavy <laughs> And just there, you, you've helped me understand what was, uh, I think, a really interesting part of the novel. I, I, when I read the book's press and the blurb on the back, it kind of leads with the events of the sea disappearing uh, outside of Clapston. But for me, reading through the novel, it was Sam's story that dominated, and it speaks to the range of the novel. But did you have a sense that this was a, a speculative fiction around a character, or... What what I'm seeing more and more described as kind of science fiction's climate change offshoots, like cli-fi, which has a has a kind of fun ring to it. Yeah, I think um, I read a lot of science fiction, and so I think what I did was I just used the tools that I had to hand. Um, I didn't really think, oh, I'm sitting down to write a cli-fi novel, or I'm sitting down to write a prophecy of what the future is going to look like. I, you know, this is the the sea retreating is ridiculous. We all know it's rising, right? So the the story in the book sort of revolves around this more about this um, the structure of time and how we think about time. Um, and part of it was for me was thinking about um, climate change denial and how that works. And I was literally sitting there wondering, well, what would we do if we could predict the future? Mm. And so this speculation sort of Sam of Sam's character evolved from this speculation. Yeah, Sam's dyschronia drives the action in such a bizarre way. She and the other residents of Clapston attempt to use her knowledge of this future imperfect to guide their choices. Now, as a writer, obviously, of fiction, you're able to plot your character's fate. You, you essentially can know the future. So what does precognition, precognition in a character bring you and what do, and the consequences of knowing that future open up for the characters within the book well one thing that fate does is it trashes causality which really uh, ruins the whole idea of narrative fiction um, because you can't actually be held accountable for something that's fated um, so in order to deal with these ideas I went back to Greek tragedy and I looked at um, how these stories were shaped um, and I found that there is actually a lot of power in this uh, circular narrative or in a story that you know where it's going, but it moves with this sort of inevitable 
um, power. And so as well as incorporating the circular narrative, I, I used a chorus in this book where the townspeople speak in um, the first-person plural. Mm. And that was a sort of tool, a way of talking about what's happening on a bigger scale, but also keeping it quite human, um, quite a human voice, I think. You also deftly juxtapose Sam's precognition with, I guess, the so-called art of of the market to predict the future and then the way people plan using market predictions for future business decisions. You've got Sam and her adoptive kind of father figure, Ed, attempting to manipulate this imperfect knowledge. And that's, that's something that isn't discussed by the characters so much, the idea that this knowledge is always focused on one point and is necessarily imperfect of the bigger picture, but they attempt to manipulate this imperfect knowledge to their own ends. Did you want the reader to engage with the ways that we attempt to use this power in our lives, the ways that we might predict? Like, predictive algorithms kind of jump to mind in the tech that we use. Yeah, very much so. I think uh, more in the sense of how, um, how capitalism works. Mm. And the sense that we're sort of, um, a lot of us anyway, are living in this sort of debt to the future and trying to predict how the future is going to be um, to make choices now that will profit us. Um, But on a large scale, these choices are actually sending us towards a catastrophic um, situation of several degrees warming, like... We're already at one degree of warming now, and this is already like more catastrophic bushfires, more risky weather. Um, I think, yeah, like it's it's difficult to talk about these issues on a global scale without making it feel like everything's doomed. And I definitely didn't want that to be the case with this book. And I don't think that the I don't think everything is doomed, but I think we need to reset the way that we think about the future and the way that we hold ourselves responsible for it. It's very interesting also, you you reminded me there, that when we hear people talk about the impacts of um, the way we treat the environment and the way the climate is actually changing, as much of it is around this idea of planning for the future rather than, you know, let, let's stop what we're doing and arrest. The idea that even if things are changing, we're going to... I've often heard people say, we have the technology to adapt and adjust and... Um, then we then we end up in colonies on other planets. It's um it's very interesting that we think we have this ability to control, which definitely flows through. I think particularly the character of Ed. Yeah, you know, and I think we do have the ability to adapt in, to some degree. But the um, the question is who is adapting and to what end? You know, like a billionaire can send a car into space, sure, and I'm sure they will eventually colonize Mars. People have been imagining this for many years. But the question is, who will benefit from this? It's not going to be all of us. Mm. There's going to always be, uh, you know, the people most affected by climate change are the world's poor. And these are the people that are going to be struggling. And so setting this book in a struggling sort of small town was important to me as well to show that, you know, we're not all benefiting from these technological solutions that come along. What happens to Clapston is more or less uh, becomes a dumping ground for others. So. I was really interested in the fact that, yes, you do keep Dyschronia contained very much within Clapston. You know, there's a road trip to Hummock. Um, 
and also you keep Sam contained. Uh, there's there's so much restraint that you exercise. As soon as, as soon as someone has the power to glimpse the future, I imagine as a writer, it could be tempting to overuse that. What was it like, or did you have a sense that you were using restraint in both uh, the setting and in, in Sam? Yeah, look, it's such a sprawling sort of um, trip, this book, and the ideas are so big that I felt like I needed to very much contain it geographically and give myself a lot of limitations. So, for example, um, Sam's uh, migraines were quite a limitation for her, so she's um, held back by this uh, chronic pain that accompanies her visions. Um, she's held back by her mother's wavering belief, disbelief in what she can do or whether or not she can do it um, by this kind of really problematic relationship that she ends up having with her mother, mm. um, which in some ways they end up abandoning each other. I think that that was partly for my own sake to avoid the book getting too uh, unwieldy and out of my hands, but it was also... Um, <clears throat> I think for the reader's sake as well, trying to bring this down to a scale where it, it was relatable um, and not not so much a parable, but like a human story that people could see themselves in. It is fascinating too because you... you play with so many elements of science fiction and speculative fiction, it would be easy to see this this book almost, you know, um, segueing into a trilogy and ending up in space. Like, the, there are so many elements, but it is so beautifully restrained and it completely changes the way we think about the science fiction elements of it because the, the sea kind of disappears and there is a section towards the later part of the book where the the narrative, and I think this is in the chorus's voice, where they are talking about how it's been eight years since the sea disappeared, and it's become so very matter-of-fact. A a different book might have, you know, had scientists arriving from across the world, and and it becomes a much bigger narrative. Um, But you've kept, as, as as you've said before, you've allowed yourself to explore big ideas in a small location. Yeah, and I think that's also an observation about how climate change works. You know, the sort of the new normal was every 10 minutes there's another new story of a species has gone extinct or um, there's more plastic in the ocean than there are fish. And we just accept these things so quickly. They become so normalised. And that's part of our, um, our ability to sort of integrate new information into our worldview, which is part of how we adapt as human beings, and that's you know one reason that we're we're good at what we do is because we have culture and we can learn. But um, it's also kind of problematic in that we can very easily accept things that are terrible and see them as ordinary. Mm. Is there some internalized uh, sense of powerlessness there too? Because it strikes me that again, a character like Sam could easily be a very different person but throughout she struggles with this idea of whether she is is gifted or cursed and whether her power is actually or her ability is actually something that is useful and and it felt like because she internalized this sense of shame and powerlessness she only ever really allows herself a small measure of control to put herself beyond her situation when she does try to manipulate the future a little bit I, i was just curious about that because there would have been a way to turn her into 
a power. Yeah, they would, and um, I I see what you mean about like this could become a trilogy, although I don't think it will. But in a sense, the end of the story is the beginning for Sam, um, which, without giving the ending away, I think uh, you can see that she changes the way that she thinks about her ability um, and her capacity. And I think that it was partly a, a quite a sense of um, feeling disempowered myself that made me write this book, but also um, it's beginning with her as a child. You know, she's she's learning her abilities, but also she's learning all of the lenses through which she's seen, and these include lenses of psychiatry and uh, the small town sort of socially conservative kind of views of who's different and. So I was looking at through this lens of like, well, how are neurotypical people treated in our society and how would someone actually be looked at who could do this? So, yeah, I think um, I want to say that she does uh, become quite strong, but it's probably not in the way that you would expect. Are you intrigued? This mix of speculative fiction and cli-fi is the work of the brain of Jennifer Mills. We are discussing dyschronia. You're listening to Final Draft on 2SCR 107.3. Jennifer, I want to thank you so much for joining me and discussing just some of the big ideas that that dyschronia is full of. Um, as As I said at the beginning, this is an absolute joy to begin the year on. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, Thank you. It's been my absolute pleasure. That's it for this great conversation with Jennifer Mills. Jennifer Mills' new novel is Dyschronia, and it's out now through Pan Macmillan. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you want to hear more great conversations from Final Draft, just hit subscribe in iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. This week, it is huge. We've been dropping an episode a day, celebrating NADOC week with amazing voices like Alexis Wright and Claire G. Coleman. And look, I want to keep sharing it with you. So please subscribe and discover fantastic Australian writing delivered straight to your phone every day. Uh, We will, of course, be going to a more normal broadcast next week. But, you know, if you want to keep up with the literary content, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations on Final Draft.